The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, have you ever tasted what it's like to be a celebrity? Uh, many years ago, back in the mid-90s, um, I had just moved to uh, Dallas, Texas, or that area from the East Coast, and I had a friend that I grew up with who had also moved off to Nashville, and he kind of was going to university, and he started making some connections, and he was one of those real techie-type guys and really good at running sound and lighting, those kind of things, and so he started getting inroads into certain uh, Christian bands, some big Christian bands back in the day, and one day he was headed to Dallas. He said, hey, um, meet me in Dallas at this one venue. We're going to have a show there, and he's running lights for this show, and he said, I'll get you in like an all-day backstage pass, and I was like, okay, sounds good, so I show up to this venue, and I had this lanyard, you know, I get to wear around to, to show how important I am, and, um, and I get to be backstage in the green room and all those different places that most of the time we can't ever go, and uh, really cool experience for that one day, and then um, before the show began, there were several bands at this concert, and I'm off on the side of the stage, kind of in the shadows, just waiting for the thing to start, and the fans are starting to gather, there's a few thousand people at this venue, and I'm on the side of the stage, off in the shadows, and this group of fans that are on that side of the arena, they see me, and they're like, hey, you in the red shirt, and I'm talking to me, and so I look over, and they're like, are you in the band? And something happened in me in that moment where my brain said no, but my mouth said yes. And so, of course, I'm, I'm waving at them, you know, because I don't want to disappoint my fans, you know, so I'm waving at them. And, uh, and so I had this little five minutes moment of what it felt like to be a celebrity. And later on, my friend, uh, months later, told me he was kind of in the industry, touring with certain groups and those kind of things in the Christian world. And he said, you know, Dave, if you really knew the personal lives of some of these bands, you'd be very disappointed at how... Some live their lives, even though that's under the label of this, this Christian music industry. And so that always kind of resonated with me, and I think about that, how it relates to the story we're going to look at today, because if I experience that kind of adulation night after night, I'm sure it would probably go to my head. I know that it would. And the disciples have been with Jesus a while, and all this attention, it's starting to go to their heads. So... Um, Three weeks ago, we did a sermon called Cross-Shaped Discipleship, and this is really part two of that. It's cross-shaped leadership. And so Jesus and the disciples, and there's this large crowd moving towards Jerusalem for Passover, and along the way, three different times, Jesus tells them about his coming death and resurrection. Each time, the disciples display their ability to miss the point. The first time... Peter rebukes him. The second time, they begin to argue about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And then you come into Mark chapter 10, and they prove they still haven't learned their lesson. But after each encounter with Jesus in these different stories, Jesus gives them some lessons about discipleship. And so we're going to see that today as well. Look with me at Mark chapter 10, verse 32, where it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, 
he will rise. So Jesus and the disciples, they have been moving towards Jerusalem, and for Jesus, there is a sense of urgency. It says he is walking ahead of the crowd. Now, normally, if someone's walking ahead of a crowd, it's because they're angry at someone, or they just have a sense of urgency. And so we see his, his purpose and his intention in the, in the sense of urgency in which he moves towards the city of Jerusalem. For the followers, there's a strange combination. It's a combination of fear, but also amazement. So why does it say that? Well, they're amazed because they've heard what he says he's about to do, what's, what's going to happen to him, and he is charging ahead with this sense of urgency. So he's not running away from his impending death, but many might be fearful because if they see him as this political messiah, this political figure, then in their minds they think, we may have to take up arms against Rome. And so some of them are afraid. So this is the third time that Jesus has predicted his own death, and this is the most detailed account that we have of that, but we also have some firsts here in the passage. This is the first time we've heard about Jerusalem being the location. It's the first time we have heard about the Jews handing him over to the Gentiles, and it's the first time where he says he'll be tried and executed within the criminal justice system. So we generally don't like it when people talk a lot about death, and Jesus has been talking a lot about death. And so most of the time in, in our world, if we talk a lot about death, uh, people just try to change the subject. And that's what happens here in the story. The disciples are always trying to change the subject when Jesus brings up this topic. And we often avoid and deflect such topics. And so look with me at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Again, when people talk about death, it also leads us to reflect on our life, what we want out of life. And so James and John think they know what they want, and they have a question for Jesus. Now listen, when, you're, when your kids come to you saying, I'm going to ask you a question and I want the answer to be yes, you can be assured that what follows is going to be a selfish question. It's usually not going to be, can we go feed the poor? That's not what they're going to ask typically. And then Peter responded, if you remember back in the earlier accounts, Peter responded to the first prediction by arguing with and rebuking Jesus. After the second announcement, the disciples begin arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And then now we have this example in Mark chapter 10. Now notice one thing, that Peter is not a part of this conversation. It's like he's learned his lesson. Like, you guys go ahead with this. I've, I'm not doing this again. And uh, so James and John, who are brothers, they're siblings. We know that siblings are naturally competitive, and the Gospel of Matthew even tells us that their mother is even pushing this agenda with Jesus for her boys. She's like the mom lobbying the coach for a kid to be like the MVP. This is what's happening here. You see, they still see Jesus as this political figure, and they think even if he's going to suffer a little, well, surely there's going to be a throne that follows. And if he's going to rule, 
I mean, he's going to need some help. I mean, Jesus can't do it all by himself. And so they anticipate this scramble for seats in the kingdom, and they want to ride shotgun and be first in line. So these men, they're ambitious status seekers. They want fame and honor. They've been marginalized long enough, and now they think it's their turn. I want to pause here for just a minute and do some apologetics. You know, some historical critics will claim the gospel accounts were, you know, fabricated or made up as a way for his followers to kind of grieve and and mourn his loss, his death. And so some scholars will say, historical critics will say that the gospel accounts were made up accounts and fabricated after Jesus died and the stories didn't really happen. But these last few chapters have not made the disciples look very good. So if you're going to make up something and you're going to fabricate an account, don't you think the people that are involved in the source material for that would make themselves look a little bit better than what we're seeing here in the text, these last few uh, sections? And so especially these, these most prominent disciples, James and John, the ones that are part of the inner circle, I don't think if it was made up that they'd make themselves look so fearful or selfish in these accounts. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. I love when thunder happens while you're preaching. It's a great effect. (laughs) Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you'll be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So have you ever asked a question having no idea what you're really asking? This is what's happening here. They think he's going to go to a throne in Jerusalem, but really he's going to go to a cross. They're expecting glory with no suffering, but they don't realize that Jesus displays his glory by suffering. You see, there's, there is going to be a person to his left and his right, but it's not going to be James and John. Instead, it's going to be two criminals, two people who committed real crimes against Rome, and now they're going to pay for it. But in between them is innocent Jesus, and I think the, the, the presence of the two criminals on the side of Jesus at the, at the cross, their presence reminds everyone that Jesus is there to take the crimes and sins of humanity upon himself. He was to die a criminal's death, even though he had done nothing wrong. And so Jesus here mentions this cup and this baptism, and these are symbols of suffering. He would drink the cup of God's wrath against sin, and he would be immersed in suffering. And the disciples still don't get it. They still don't understand, as seen in their statement, because they say the statement, they say, he says, can you handle the the cup of suffering in this baptism? And they just say, we're able. We can do this. Do you remember what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. And they're over here saying, yeah, we got this. So, and they have no understanding what they're talking about and what they are about to be signed up for. Jesus also says here that granting places of authority in the kingdom, he says that that's not my role. My role is to come and die and resurrect. My role is not to grant places of authority. That belongs to the Father. 
And then he goes on to say that they're going to suffer in the same way that he suffers. Look how the rest respond in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the rest of the disciples now, of course, they're upset. They're upset with James and John because maybe they're jealous. Maybe they thought that they wish they'd asked that question before that those two did. Or maybe they, they just think that uh, Jesus is now saying, well, you bring this question up. Well, now you're going to suffer just like I'm going to suffer. And so now they think they're being maybe punished for what these two disciples did. But the model of leadership in the Roman world is all about power and control and exploitation. And the Jews have experienced this Roman rule, and these disciples think that Jesus is there to set up a system where they can now take the power, and they can turn the tables on Rome. And Jesus says to them right here, he says, but it shall not be so among you. So Jesus turns the tables, all right? He turns the table completely upside down. And he says, you want to be great? Well, be humble. You want to be first? We'll be last. I'm reminded of a leadership principle I heard a while back. I grew up close to a Marine base, and the U.S. Marines, they have this principle whenever it comes to the officers and the men that are in the Marines, and the principle is this. Whenever they're having a meal together, the officers always eat last. It's their way of showing service to the other men and women that are in the Marines, And there's this principle that leaders eat last, not just in a meal, but it's a leadership principle that I think runs through what they do in that branch of service. And it reminds me of a story. Many years ago when I first, uh, one of the first few years of me being on staff at TBC, for those that may not know, about every two years, we as a staff will go somewhere um, for a staff conference or go visit some churches and just see how they do ministry and observe and study what they do. And we were flying to San Diego for a pastor's conference, all of us that were on staff with our wives as well. And we're going to San Diego for this conference. And about halfway there, the pilot comes on and says, we're hearing some issues with the engine, so we're going to land in Phoenix, but we're going to be okay. Don't worry. And so we're going to be in Phoenix for a few hours. And I've got a really good friend that lives there, and I haven't seen him in 10 years. So I texted him and said, hey, come to the airport. We're here. Be here for a few more hours, I guess. And so he shows up, and we're just kind of catching up. We're sitting over at a table in the airport and just talking and catching up on life. And he'd met our staff there in the airport as well. And our staff now is at a table about to have dinner together, and he sees Gary DeSalvo, who was our lead pastor at the time, and Danny Cunningham, our executive pastor, he sees those two getting up and serving drinks and serving food to our staff, and he said, hey, who are those two guys? And I told him who they were, and he said, he goes, you need to remember that, because the church that he was working at at that time, that is not the kind of servant leadership that he was witnessing on his church staff, where he worked. And a few years later, his church leadership kind of imploded, and those things began to play out there at the church he was serving at. But what's interesting is the word servant, 
here in verse 43 in Greek. Do you know what it is? It's diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon, and it means table waiter. Do you guys see this bug? What is this thing? I need like a fly swatter. It's a fly swatter. There we go. I got it. Do you see that? That has never happened before. It's a miracle of God. And now it's smashed on my notes. All right. I've already taught that part, so it doesn't matter, so I'm good. Um, where We have thunder. We have flies. Other plagues might be on their way. We don't know. Um, where was I? But serving, yes. So uh, to be a leader in God's kingdom means we get to serve. We get to serve. And here's the problem. Many start out this way in ministry where, whether it's a volunteer, vocational, just wanting to serve, wanting to contribute their small role to the body of Christ. But over time, something can happen to us. As we gain experience, we get more responsibility. We get pats on the back. We stop depending on him. And we start becoming independent, doing things in our strength and for recognition. And so for these disciples... They've been with Jesus for a while, and it's going to their heads. It's starting to go to their heads. Now, none of us are exempt from that kind of temptation, are we? You know, I've been reading this book by Paul Tripp the last couple of days called Lead, and it's really written to just anyone leading in the capacity, in church capacity. And he says in his introduction that we are having a leadership crisis in the church. And he is seeing it firsthand. And I've been, you've been hearing about it for a long time now. There's just this either whatever size church it might be, but these ministries that have these people that kind of become these celebrities, we venerate these people, put them on a pedestal, and then find out like all these skeletons that there are in the closet. And it's not just moral failure, it's things like bullyish leadership, pride, arrogance, I mean, it runs the gamut. Been listening to a podcast recently that is profiling a church that many of you might know about this place, I'm not going to mention it, but... Um, that serve as cautionary tales. And there's this one church in particular that is really no longer in existence because of the kind of leadership that was happening, toxic leadership that was happening there in that congregation. You know, at some point, I think we as leaders forget that we're called to serve instead of being served. There's even a scientific component to this. I recently read an article in The Atlantic entitled, Power Causes Brain Damage by a guy named Jerry Useem. He cites research indicating that people under the influence of power act as if they have suffered a traumatic brain injury, becoming more impulsive, less aware of risk, and less able to empathize with people. In that article, another professor is quoted as saying, this is this power paradox he's talking about. He says, once we have power, we lose some of the capacities that we needed to gain it in the first place, meaning emotional intelligence or the people skills, relational skills that we needed to get to where we are. Power has this way of killing empathy and it can hurt our ability to relate well to other people and people less likely to speak truth to us and we're less likely to hear it even if they do. And so I know I'm going to give you some whiplash here to go from quoting a professor to now quoting a comedian, but comedian Dave Chappelle back in the early 2000s was starting to have great success and Comedy Central offered him a contract worth $50 million 
dollars. And he signs the contract. But then he began to realize that when you reach this new plateau of success, there's just a lot of people that want to be around you suddenly. And so he had this reevaluation, or some call it a breakdown, and he just left and went off to a different continent and took a few months away and abandoned the contract. And then he comes back to the U.S., and of course, you know, whenever you have those kind of breakdowns, you're going to go to the most expensive therapist in the world, Oprah Winfrey. And so you go to, and he sits on her couch for a show, for an interview, and she says, you know, you had all this success, $50 million handed to you, and you walked away, and she says, Dave, why did you do it? And he said this statement. Sometimes success can take you places where character cannot sustain you. We see it happen in politics. We see it happen in sports, entertainment. happens in the church. And so what do we do with this? I think we all understand that we're broken beings, right, at our core. So what do we do with this? Well, I don't want you to hear me saying, look, just follow the example of Jesus and that's it. Because here's why verse 45 is so important. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's important that we hear this. Rico Tice writes, we are not saved by following the example of Jesus, but by trusting in his sacrifice. You see, a lot of people can do the servant leader thing. We can conjure up some humility, some false humility. There's lots of good books, secular books on the importance of humility and leadership. I mean, we can do humility without Jesus, right? But here's the reality. If it's not grounded in Jesus, flowing from Jesus, it's going to fall short and it's not going to last. You see, Jesus says he lays down his life as a ransom for many. And the word for means instead of or in place of. And you see, Jesus is our substitute. Now, the word ransom, we often use that word in relation to kidnapping, but it really means to buy someone's freedom. And so Jesus comes and he pays the ransom. Now, there are some people that really struggle with this. There are some theologians that have said that Christianity is just like all the ancient pagan religions out there in history, where the, there's this bloodthirsty gods or bloodthirsty God who's looking for appeasement through sacrifice. So they say they're all the same. They're all looking for the same thing. But we raised a question a couple weeks ago, and we asked the question, why can't God just forgive? Why did Jesus have to die? And we said that forgiveness always involves suffering. Well, another way to say that is that all life-changing love requires substitutionary sacrifice. All life-changing love requires substitutionary sacrifice. One example, of course, is parenting. I don't need to tell the parents in the room that you know that your love for your kids involves some substitutionary sacrifice. The only way for kids to grow up and mature is if we step in sometimes almost as a substitute, making a sacrifice on their behalf, and if we don't pay now, they're going to pay for it later, and they're going to pay for it in non-redemptive ways. I love listening to the, uh, a lot of the Hall of Fame speeches when the NFL does it every fall, 
and you will hear these speeches, and it always goes back to these themes of you know, parents and coaches and mentors sacrificing for them so they could get to where they were on that stage. You see, all real life changing love requires substitutionary sacrifice, and if that's true for us personally, how much more true is it for us spiritually? You know, some don't like the concept of Jesus being our substitute, bearing God's wrath for our sin on the cross. They will say if Jesus bore God's wrath, then that's divine child abuse. There are some that will say that. But I want to remind you that Jesus is God, and he goes to that cross willingly. He is out front in this procession, ahead of the crowd, on his way to Jerusalem, with purpose and with urgency. And he knows what's coming for him. He is going to the cross willingly. This is not divine child abuse. This is divine sacrifice. It is true that the gods of ancient religions demanded sacrifices, but Christianity is the only religion where God comes and he puts on flesh and he becomes the sacrifice. Tim Keller says it this way, the ancients understood the idea of the wrath of God. They understood the idea of justice, the idea of a debt and a necessary punishment, but they had no idea that God would come and pay it himself. Humans are not wise enough to invent a religion where God comes and dies. We're not smart enough for that. We would never think that up on our own. This is why every other religion basically has the same thread, which is how can I work my way towards God or the gods? And so we're not smart enough to make that part up, that God would come and put on flesh and live a life here on earth and then die on our behalf and then resurrect again. We would never make up something like that. And then right after Jesus talks about serving in this way, he backs it up with what happens next. Look at verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So as they journey toward Jerusalem, they come to Jericho. This is a new Jericho, not the other, other something happened to the old one, and uh, this is now the new Jericho. And in that time, there's a blind man that's sitting along the road, and this was a common sight, and someone healing him, of course, would not be a common sight. And so Bartimaeus, this blind man, has heard about Jesus, and the title he uses here, he says, son of David, which means that he believes Jesus is the Messiah. So you have Jesus and these disciples, and there's this crowd going to Jerusalem for Passover, and this man begins calling out, but the crowd tries to quiet him. 
They don't want him talking to Jesus. And now they're all feeling important, you know, by association. They're with Jesus in this crowd. They're feeling important by association. And they're with Jesus on their way to a spiritual festival. And they're going to Jerusalem to see and be seen. But Jesus sees this opportunity to display what he was teaching about. And he tells the crowd to call Bartimaeus. And so Bartimaeus throws off his cloak and he comes to Jesus. And Jesus asks him an interesting question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Now that's a strange question because everyone knows what this man needs. I mean, the man's blind. But where have we heard that question before? Well, that's the same question that the disciples, that he asked the disciples. He asked the disciples the same question earlier. Now their request, of course, was much different. They were asking, can you give us the two most important roles in your kingdom? You know, second only to yours, of course. And then Bartimaeus, he's over here on the side of the street just begging, and he sees the son of David, and he says, he says, have mercy on me. He says, I just, I just want to be able to see. And then Jesus heals him, but here's the secret. This man could already see. He could see better than the disciples. He could see better than the Pharisees. He clearly saw who Jesus was. The disciples asked their question in pride. This man asked his question in faith. And listen, just because we've asked Jesus for something doesn't mean we're asking for the right things. The disciples just want a seat at the throne, but this man, he just wants mercy. Now here's the secret. Do you know how you get a seat at the throne? Do you know how you get a seat at the throne? You ask him for his mercy. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul writes, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All of that is a fancy way of saying that for the believer, whatever happens to Jesus also happens to us. And so here's the reality that that he offers you a seat at the throne, but it does not come through position of prominence, but through the lowly position of Jesus hanging on a cross and in our place. And this is what he offers people. So how do we know if someone has experienced this, this kind of mercy we're talking about? Well, the question is, are they merciful? When someone has experienced this kind of mercy from God, it's going to flow out in their life. They're going to become a merciful person in their relationships, in their leadership, wherever that might be. You can tell a lot about someone by whether they notice and how they speak to the least important person in the room. For these people here, they ignored blind Bartimaeus. You know, we follow the most powerful man in the universe who used all that power to serve. We follow a king whose throne was a cross and had a crown made from thorns. And so, again, I don't want you to see this as just just see Christ as our example, but I want you to see him as our 
ransom in our place, our substitute. Rico Tice writes, a wise older pastor said to me as I started out that I must make sure I always did things for the gospel. If you do things primarily for yourself, you're twisting Christian ministry into self-serving self-promotion. If you do things primarily for your church, you'll grow jaded, cynical, or bitter because your church will let you down. But do things for the Jesus who never has and never will let you down, and you'll be ready to serve in whatever way you're called to. And so today, as we just worship here at the end of our service, I want to invite you to respond. Just as we sing, if you need to sit there and just pray and cry out to God, I want you to think through, if you're someone that doesn't yet know Christ, you're not following Christ, you've never surrendered your life to Christ, that maybe your prayer needs to be the prayer of Bartimaeus, which is, son of God, son of, son of David, have mercy on me. That you've never experienced the mercy that he offers to you, the grace that he offers to you. And so maybe that's the prayer that you need to pray this morning. Or maybe you are a believer and like me, you struggle with this idea of being a servant in the way that Jesus is calling us to be. And so our, our lives often aren't shaped by the cross in the way that Jesus is talking about here. And so maybe there are some things that God's just going to bring to your mind as you pray and as you worship this morning again, as you reflect on these ideas, that there are things he wants to bring to your mind and to your heart that you can repent from and confess to him. Ways in which the mercy that you have experienced with him hasn't really infiltrated into your relationships, maybe even the place that you work or as you carry about just whatever you're doing throughout your days. And so I want to invite you to respond this morning. Why don't you go ahead and stand up with us as we pray and worship together. God, thank you for the mercy and the grace that you offer to us, that you offer, offer to us on the cross. God, we thank you and praise you that you do offer us a seat at the throne, but it's only through your mercy. It's only through understanding the position, your position as God and our position before you, finding our identity in you. God, would you help us to live out that identity in our lives? And be people that are marked by grace and marked by mercy and how we relate to other people and as we serve. I pray for people here, you're stirring up something in them to serve in some way in the body of Christ or even outside, out in our city. I pray that you would help them to, to work through that and go about that in a servant-minded way as you call them to be someone who is shaped by the cross, even in how they carry themselves in the body of Christ or out there in our city. We just thank you and praise you this morning, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.